to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Daria Brown of affectautism.com, and I'm so excited this week to have a superstar mother and daughter team that I've heard so much about, and I finally got to see them both present recently at the ICDL conference last November, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, the home of DIR Floor Time, the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model. This is Millie and Joanne. They are mother and daughter occupational therapy team. They are, um, Millie is an expert DIR training leader. Joanne is working on her advanced certificate. They are with Individual and Team Therapy Services in Atlanta, which is the occupational therapy link to Floor Time Atlanta. And Millie worked and trained with Dr. Stanley Greenspan back in the day. And I can't wait to hear some of the old stories and then how your daughter ended up following in your footsteps. And we'll get into towards the end, a third generation possibility. <laughs> so welcome both. Both of you, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having us. It's really cool that we have had this opportunity to come as a team. I don't know that we have ever presented as a team or so. have been called a team. So that's really cool. There is always room for a first time. That's right. That's right. It's about time, right? <laughs> yeah. So do you want to start by telling us how did you find out about floor time, Millie, were you an occupational therapy therapist first, and then you found out about floor time? And how did you meet Dr. Greenspan? And tell us about your journey. So my journey started a long time ago. And very much like most occupational therapists, I had no idea of what occupational therapy is. And um, the day before I had to declare my major, a friend stopped me and said, this looks just like you. Well, that was the beginning of a beautiful, beautiful um, road that I decided to embark on. As, as I look back, I know that in, I knew I wanted to work with kids. I knew I wanted to be helpful to society. So occupational therapy provided me with all those opportunities. Long story short, as I am a newly, newly graduate, and I had been married for about four months. I started on my first job. Um, and it was during, at that point, uh, occupational therapists in pediatrics working with children in, in the autism range, or, you know, they were not called spectrum at that point. Um, I started just moving on and trying to figure out what to do with these kids that nobody knew what to do. The theory of sensory integration was also being developed. And I only knew that I wanted to play with them and nobody was playing with them. They were telling them what to do and how to do it. And they would get you know, rewards if they did it appropriately. And if not, they would sit in a corner and I just couldn't stand that. Um, I'm one of five and I had to play with all my brothers so I knew that this was not the way to do stuff. I was very proud and it took me forever to write my very first home program for this family. They had a four-year-old child uh, that had really no diagnosis at that point. 
So I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how could this family look and help their child become much more uh, functional, let's call it, using occupational therapy. As I sit with the mom, the mom, you know, she, she was so cool. She let me finish all my pages and pages and pages of program that she was supposed to implement at home. And she just looked at me and said, Millie, thank you for all you have done. This is beautiful, but I cannot do it. I have two other children and there is no way that I can work and complete all these tasks that you have asked me to do. And she rounded up by saying, once you have children, you'll see that there is no way anyone can do this. And I just, Daria, I went home and I cried. I told my husband, I cannot believe it. After hours that I have, you know, as, as a professional, I had put all this program. Well, fast forward 25 years later, I'm finishing up my doctoral dissertation. And I decided that she really was the one that inspired me to, to continue learning not only how to be an occupational therapy, not only how to work with children or play with children, which is what I prefer to use, but how do we support parents to be able to walk this walk with our kids. And as such, I had four gorgeous children to help me. And, you know, I, I'm going to say something. I don't know that you would be happy to hear. Uh -oh. But they were not very proud of me when I decided I would just run down, you know, a mall and sing in the mall and twirl. You know, I was that type of crazy parent that would get them to do all that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that they were really my models. So between what I did at, at my work and having my kids, that helped me figure it out. This is a this is amazing. So right off the bat, without any training, you instinctually knew that didn't feel right, what you saw others doing. Correct. And I want to play with these children and I want to figure out a way to to bring their spirit out that's inside of them that they're not able to we're not able to see and we're figure not out able to understand. And we're not able to understand. And you instinctually knew that. And then to have that experience of, okay, I know exactly how to help this person and getting it all ready. And, and I mean, I can relate because I, I spend all my spare time on this website to help other parents with information that I would have wanted when my son got diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I get all these questions and I want to just say, read my website, listen to every podcast, and then you'll have all the answers and then your problems are solved. But that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. Walk on those shoes to be able to figure out where to go and how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that was really an eye opener that that I can see influenced the rest of your career. And and really, it's what the advanced DIR training is about is you first in the first levels, you learn what is floor time, what, are, what is the developmental trajectory that that humans go through. And then 
the advanced course, you're like, okay, we're working with families <laughs> and it's about meeting the family where they're at. Exactly. So it's interesting. Yep. So by then we were living in Atlanta and I had met Dr. Barbara Dunbar and Barbara, I guess she liked what I was doing. She was already working with Stanley and she's one a, day she she's said, a, is she a psychologist? Yes. She's a psychologist. She's a psychologist now at part of floor time Atlanta. Yes. And was working with Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who was a medical doctor, a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist, correct. And who was, you know, so instrumental in developing this DIR piece. Um, one of the things she did was she told me there is this, this group of people that meet regularly in, in Washington, D.C. Why don't you come and see what this is all about? You know, Dara had four kids. It's not easy to leave four kids for 10 days to go get a training, especially when I had just had my Tomatis training with Maud was on that training and it was three weeks of our being outside of our home. So my husband said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. They have pizza almost every night or they have, you know, whatever, almost every night. And they did it and I did it. And it was a beautiful beginning for, for me because it was almost like an assurance that what I was doing had a name, a first name and a last name. And it was D-E-I-R. And that although many occupational therapists, we take ownership for that I, we have to learn and to understand that without the D and the R is occupational therapy. But if you include the D and the R in your treatment, in your approach, in your working with families, then you really have occupational therapy with a DIR approach, with a floor time approach. So and, and just own, just for people that may be listening who are new, um, she mentioned she did Tomatis training with Maud Larue. We had her on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she's the occupational therapist that my family has worked with over the years, and she's fabulous. And um, it was interesting to hear you say that occupational therapists feel like they own that I, the I being for individual differences in the DIR model. And that bringing in the D and the R, the development and the relationship. And those are, that's the whole basis of why it was called. And Dr. Tippy always makes fun of, um, not make fun of, but comments that uh, Dr. Greenspan wasn't the best at naming things in, in you know, developmental individual differences relationship-based model. Is it quite a mouthful, but he was so insistent on these three aspects being so important to the model right. that he he didn't want to leave it out so we shorten it and call it dir <laughs> correct but yes that's that's where i mean that's where i have been for the last over 25 years now so with my white hair you can tell that i've been at this for a long time so i don't know if you want to jump in and say how you were interested in ot well i wasn't I know. I wasn't. I wasn't going to be an OT. I was going to be an opera singer. Yes. And I happily went off at 18 to pursue my 
degree in, in um, vocal performance. And, and we were very proud of you. So proud. And I got through. Oh, we were always proud. I know. <laughs> oh. Um, I got. I hope, that, I hope that anyone listening on audio will come on the YouTube channel and see the video because these two are so adorable. I love it. <laughs> And you know, it's I, I didn't know that about you, Joanne, although I mean, I don't know you at all, but it's interesting to hear you say that you, you went into vocal because I, I didn't think of it, but now that you say it, you, you have one of those voices. You know, you can tell when you're speaking with someone who's developed their vocal cords from singing and from opera that they just speak, they have a different type of voice or whatever. So that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I was so sure I was gonna be an opera singer. and. And I, I liked it. I liked singing, um, but music school took all the magic away from music when you're dissecting it. And I was pretty unhappy. And I thought, well, that was just one year. Let me go back and try again. I really didn't like it. So I came home, I took a year off. And um, in that time I was babysitting a kid with autism and that kid hated me. He absolutely hated me. And I would, I would knock on the door and open in and say, hey, he would say, no, no, no. And I thought, <laughs> okay, all right. But you know, one day I just kept trying. I just kept trying. And I would ask my mama, what should I do? How do I you know, connect with him? And, you know, I'd be there, you know, an hour or two. And finally, one day we connected and he saw, well, I wouldn't say he saw me. I finally saw him and stopped being the one to, you know, trick him into connecting with me so I could feel good. Um, but we really just engaged and that was it. I went home that same day and I told my parents, that's it. I'm not going back to music school. I'm going to be an occupational therapist. And they said, nope, you're going back to music school. And I had to plead my case. <laughs> but it became really clear that, um, that no, I, I did want to be an occupational therapist. And I'm so glad that kid hated me because it changed my trajectory. <laughs> He was one of my favorite kids, by the way. So, <laughs> well, and you know, that, that goes to show he was used to somebody really just engaging and being with him, being present with him. Yeah. Whereas I wanted to, you know, get the prize. You wanted to entertain him. Well, I wanted to entertain him, but I also wanted to be able to come home and say, see, I did it, which is, that's all about me, not about him. And I wasn't serving him until we connected. And then it was just, we were together and we were playing. And, and I don't know that I would have thought to do any of that had I not been raised by this woman and an amazing dad. Um, well, that, it just really echoes the transition you see in parents when their child gets a diagnosis and the typical response is, you know, grief, panic, oh no. And then this flood of rushing to do what you need to do to fix everything and make sure my child gets all the services they need before school starts so they can catch up with the rest of the kids and making that transition. And this is what I presented about at the ICDL conference. My biggest revelations from being a floor time parent in the last eight years, just getting from there to a place where you just accept your child for who they are and you really connect with them and you don't make it about you you focus on your child and your child's happiness and how you can support your child. And so you really had that experience 
before you became an occupational therapist and and it was so rewarding to you that that made you want to do your life's work so that that's really an amazing story thank you well and it was hard when i did finally get to ot school you know applied and got in and um floor time was still you know this was 20 years ago floor time was still relatively new and um you know we I would try to explain to my professors the model and uh, you know the best way I could, not being a therapist yet and not having done any of the training. And um, the, you know, they would say, but we already follow the child's lead. We follow them all around. What do you mean? Um, and, and so you know, the, as the curriculum was, was based in, in more behavioral strategies and sensory strategies, um, that's what I learned. Um, and it was um, really tough when I graduated and, and, and went to North Carolina um, because, of course, I graduated, got married, and moved in the span of two weeks. Because <laughs> why not do everything at once? And um, it, it was really disheartening. Um, I Because I had always been surrounded by amazing clinicians, I just assumed that all occupational therapists were as good as my mom and as respectful as, as she is and respectful as her peers are. Um, and that was not the case. Um, and so I ended up, you know, really struggling with and taking a break from pediatrics. Um, and so now I'm an all ages therapist um, because the focus was on how, even from a sensory perspective, how can I manipulate this child to get them to do what I want them to do? Because I am the grown up and they are the child instead of being present with the kid. And I remember the day I decided to resign from my first job was the day that I was working with a, an eight-year-old whose first name started with a C. And you know the, the lead therapist was saying, you have to have a goal to write the letter C because this kid has to be able to you know, spell their name. And this kid, was so uncomfortable in their own skin. They were miserable most days, um, very few moments of joy. And all I could think was, this is terrible. And I said, okay, you know, the last day was the day because I had to file a report on how he was doing, was me putting my hand on this kid's hands and saying, buddy, I'm really sorry. We have to do it. I'm gonna put my hand on your hand. We're gonna make a C, we're gonna document it, and then we're gonna play. Um, but it, it was just heartbreaking to see that over and over again, the, the, the behavioral manipulation of, you know, I'm going to be tough to make you do what I want to do. I'll only give you this if you do what I want you to do. And that's not how we were raised. And it never occurred to me that people would use that as a therapeutic model. Um, because yeah. And, you know, funny diversion here. I thought um, in my early days that maybe it was just because we're Puerto Rican and we had so many cultural differences in our, you know, growing up, you know, my friends would come over and we'd be having rice and beans with bistec and onions and I'd go to their house and we'd be having casserole. And I thought, you know, okay, well, their parents do um, grounding. Maybe in Puerto Rico, you don't get grounded. So my parents just don't do that. It didn't occur to me until I was a therapist and was really out there that no, this was intentional. This was these were intentional choices as parents 
Um, maybe not immediately intentional because, you know, parenting is hard and we didn't make it easy. Um, but it, it is a mindset. It is an everyday thing. Um, and so we were able to come home and, and talk about things. Um, all the kids wanted to hang out at our house yeah. because they could share things with our parents without being shamed um, or judged in any way. Just to give you a, a sample of things that we would do at our house. We were a lot of, of people in a house and I work. So we had to all pitch in to clean the house, you know, like a lot of families. And so I decided that it was, it was going to, I would post all the things that needed to be done. And by Thursday night, they were supposed to sign in what they wanted to do, but they would get extra credit and there was no money, no nothing, just a thank you. But they would get extra credit if they would pick up things that did not belong to them and they would do it with a smile. Those were, you know, the, the real movers because we wanted, we wanted a community. We wanted our kids to know that we were all part of this together. And if you start just challenging and it's not gonna happen. Mm -mm. Anyway, thank you for listening back. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and you know, it speaks to something that I was speaking with Maude LaRue and Mike Fields about in a podcast a few weeks ago, which was, what does it do to a child to have a label of a diagnosis? And Maude was saying she's been reading some, you know, Carl Jung and psychology about identity and identity formation. And and it's so funny to hear you say, I thought it was just because we were Puerto Rican <laughs> that we were different, but it, it really is an insight into the minds of children, you know, like we we don't necessarily know. So if you have a therapist constantly making you do things and you feel like a failure and you think that it's about you and you don't realize like i'm fine the way i am it's just this therapist who may or may not have great intentions and we assume that they do have good intentions but their schooling and whatever they learned was this is the way you do it and you know behaviorism set back <laughs> a nice family culture for for decades now and it's still the norm in our society where parents you know aren't treating their children with as much respect as they could be when they're using discipline and compliance methods all the time and it's it's not just with autistic kids it's just the norm in general um so it, it's it's always refreshing when people find a family that they can just relax with and not feel judged and shamed. And as you said, so uh, that, that was a really cute story. <laughs> I liked that part. Well, yeah. So, and I think, so I, um, as an adult was diagnosed with ADHD. I flew under the radar. This one knew, um, I think could tell, um, but um, I flew under the radar for years um, because I was smart enough to keep going and cheerful enough and um, a girl. Um, so I didn't have uh, a lot of the uh, red flags. I just looked like a flighty daydreaming, cheerful um, kid, right? And I remember being really frustrated at school because my teachers didn't always understand and they thought I was maybe being lazy or wasn't working hard enough. And I would 
I remember distinctly in second grade struggling to remember my homework. And I, I saw a teacher, the teacher giving another classmate a place to write down all the homework assignments. And she even said to me, oh, you don't need that. Um, I recognize now that it might have been part of, you know, some kind of IEP, right? That this kid have um, a, a list of homework assignments, but I did need it. And at home, it wasn't ever, why aren't you working hard enough? Because I, I always had good grades, but I would forget things. Why aren't you working hard enough? It was always, why is this so hard for you? And what do we need to figure out? So there was always an emphasis on, okay, that's a problem. How are we going to figure this out? Well, and I think that what happened to us as we saw her growing up, and remember, we had three others that had their own issues, but we always tried to be as supportive as we could. And if I could use a couple of examples, sure. um, this beautiful young woman that you see now was dying to play basketball, okay? So I kept thinking and talking to my husband, she's not going to make it, you know? She's just <laughs> not going to make it. Her, her motor pony skills are not going to be there, but, but she really wanted to do it. So we found a very caring team that would support her. And, you know, game after game, we were there. And Joanne, you can, Joanne sat on the bench half the time. Um, she wouldn't do, she couldn't do it. She this, she that. By golly, on the last game of the season, she makes a basket on the wrong team. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, should we praise her for what she did? Should we just, you know, laugh with her? We all embraced her, and it was the most amazing, you know, even if it was on the opposite team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I think what was cool about that basketball experience is I, I knew it wasn't going to work for me. I had that figured out, but I wasn't going to give up. And in the first several games, the, I would say to the coach, do not put me in. Don't put me in. Do not put me in. And by the end, I was saying, is it my turn? Is it my turn? Um, and it was a lovely opportunity to try something hard that I was not naturally good at um, and and still make it through. And how old would you have been around then? About 11. Yeah. Oh, so very young. Yeah. 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 And we have had other other issues here and there. And as parents, I think we have thought about it talked about it between the two of us and figure out ways that we could provide. Our goal was to provide the, the best experience for them. Not that they all had to be successful, as you heard, but that we were there supporting them in whatever they wanted to do. You know, we have a daughter that is a drummer and she would, we would go, they would not let her go in the, in the clubs because she was too young. So we would have to go with her and sign her in so that she could go and, and play drums in the city of Atlanta while the two of us would sit in the parking lot because I couldn't resist the drums. You know, I mean, we did a lot of 
those things. Um, well, and she grew up to be an amazing drummer and an amazing performer and musician. Yeah. 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 Here and there, as our kids grew, that was a very important part for us, for us that we would support them in doing whatever. It, it, we always said, we don't care what you do. You have to be happy. And as such, I think you are more happy. Yeah, but don't yeah. make me cry. <laughs> I'm not going to make you cry. <laughs> yeah, um, we're happy. We're happy. So then all of a sudden, you're an occupational therapist. You get married and get the most fun last name to pronounce. Yes. <laughs> I have to say that when you and Mike were presenting at the bottom of your slides on the, at the ICDL conference, it said, Fields and Fleckenstein. And I thought, wow, that's a mouthful. That would make like a great, you know, like sounds like a law firm. It's fun to say. So you get married. You're an occupational therapist now. You're back in Atlanta. No. So we had both kids in North Carolina. Um, my husband ended up going to law school um, after many, many years at IBM. Oh, so maybe um, he is at a law firm with that name. He, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so he, we moved back to Atlanta um, in 2014 because he graduated and got a job here. Uh, so it was really, um, at first I said, no, mommy, I'm not going to practice with you because what if that we get in an argument and it hurts our relationship, but then I couldn't resist. And, <laughs> and I said, well, listen, listen, I'll just see kids when you're on vacation. I'll just, and then she came back from vacation. I said, well, I'll, I'll keep that one and that one and that one on my caseload. And, and that's, that's how we ended up here. <laughs> and then you have children of your own. I and do then you have a whole new floor time journey. A whole new floor time journey. And uh, so I have a 12 year old um, who has ADHD and autism and a 10 year old who is an absolute gorgeous rascal um rotten and wonderful and loving and everything um and when i had my oldest uh, where i was pregnant with my oldest um i found out very early um that i was having a girl i was not supposed to be able to have kids i've been told forever i would never you know be able to conceive and surprise and so i was followed fairly closely and found out very early i was having a girl and the very first thing i did was go out and buy a pair of um, satiny newborn ballet slippers from a fancy boutique near our house. And I took those newborn ballet slippers home and I was so excited and just envisioning, you know, all of the things that my kid would do just like I did, that my kid would sing and I, and I danced to you. Know, one of the things in, in my mom's wisdom, I was I, pretty hypotonic pretty, and pretty low muscle tone. And my mom said, all right, I guess you're going to go do some dance and get strong. And, and I did well. And so I always danced and, and, and pursued a lot of music. And I had uh, ideas in my head of what my kid would look like. And when my little one was born, um, weighing five pounds, 13 ounces. This oh, exactly what my son weighed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this little teeny tiny baby, she didn't fit in preemie clothes. Yeah. Preemie clothes was too big. And so, of course, these newborn ballet slippers didn't fit. And you know, my mom is frantically crocheting 
a new outfit um, to take the baby home in because we had nothing. She had to go shopping for for new clothes. When my mother-in-law came, um, she bought American Girl doll socks because those were the only socks that would fit on this little baby's feet. Um, And her little feet would get cold. Um, So, of course, the new ballet slippers got put away. And when Andy was finally big enough to wear these newborn ballet slippers, um, she was so tactically defensive that I could not get them on her feet. So I put them away again thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'll have another girl or maybe, right? Um, And I didn't. And when I found them again, Andy was probably eight years old. And by this point, we didn't have the autism diagnosis, but we did have the ADHD diagnosis. and, and, And the clinical picture was clear. It was clear that we weren't just jumping a few developmental hurdles along the way. It was clear that this was a, a developmental pattern. Um, it hit me when I saw those ballet slippers that the kid I expected was not the kid I had. I had a redhead, fiery redhead, um, with the most precious dimples, who definitely is an individual, right? You cannot put Andy in a box. Um, and it was amazing. Of course, I cried when I found them. It was amazing to, to realize that the kid I had in my mind, the kid I was dreaming of before I delivered, was nowhere near as good as the kid I had in front of me. And so I keep those newborn ballet slippers in a glass case in my office as a reminder to help parents see that too. That yeah, we can absolutely mourn the loss of the kid that we thought we were getting. And, and it's hard when you don't get what you expect. But thank God I did not get the kid that I was expecting because my kid is way better. My kid is an amazing human being who has free days off and volunteers working with with kids with autism, right? Um, This kid can bake a cake way better than I can, and I'm a good baker. Uh, This kid who cooks dinner twice a week, who refused to eat for several months, you know, consistently um, because her palate was just so sensitive. As a baby. As a baby. Yes, as a baby. You know, this kid that we had jumped so many hurdles with and I thought, are we ever going to make it? Well, yeah, we we, we are. We are making it. And, and she's, you said she's 12 now. Yes, Andy's 12 now. Soon to be 13. Soon to be 13. Okay, and my little guy is just turning 12. So about a year yeah. apart. Yep. Yeah, and it, it is... It's so freeing to let go of that baby, that ideal baby. Um, because when we do that, we really can um, respect and be with the kid we have in front of us and, and find joy in um, the amazing things and kind of laugh sometimes when things get hard because you don't, you know, it's not so much a worry of, oh my gosh, how's this gonna turn out? Is my kid gonna be okay? Is my kid gonna be okay? but more of a, all right, here we go again. All right, new twist. Yep, there's always twists, that's for sure. Uh, One of the things that I put in my presentation with ICDL was a clip of my, my son at six months old where he's in a baby carrier on his dad and dad is holding a measuring tape and letting it go 
and my son's laughing his head off. It's the cutest baby video ever. And then fast forward to when he's three, post brain inflammation, post diagnosis, post all of those emotions. Like this is not the child I thought I was going to end up. I didn't know I was going to end up with a child who was going to have extra challenges and and be you know recovering from brain inflammation and having you know sensory difficulties that make it so hard for him to do things that other kids can do naturally and and it's a video of him during a speech and language session with the therapist laughing his head off at that book you know red socks blue socks whatever oops and then he laughs his head off again again more 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 with his sign language more 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 again again and i pointed out in the in the presentation it, to me, that was so powerful that I had that on video because it's the exact same laugh as he had when he was six months old. And for me, it it wasn't so much comparing the child I thought I was going to have to the one I ended up having as the child I had, and then the child post brain inflammation, post diagnosis to the one that was developing beforehand and where I thought that child was going to be, but a similar kind of emotional experience that you're describing and then seeing that video i even remember at the time taking it like there's that laugh he's still the same guy he's still my sweetheart like it, it's my child and and i think that really helped uh move me into the next step where i stopped feeling sorry for myself and worrying about me and focused more on him and of course i was always focused on him i was overly attentive, maybe to a fault, but really wanting to keep him happy and everything, but, but feeling so distressed about having to do so. And it changed then, you know, it really changes. Uh, it, it's, it's a process, but getting to that point where you realize like, this kid is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. We were watching um, the, the newest, this is hilarious thing is, or newest plot twist is, uh, my kid is not scared of horror movies, like not even a little bit, not even a tiny bit. So now it's a game. Okay, what next horror movie can I show my almost teen that is going to be incredibly terrifying? Um, I have not reached that threshold. <laughs> We're still working on it. Um, but whereas earlier in the process, something like that would have been so disconcerting. Oh my gosh, what's going on with my kid's emotional health? You know, what what's happening? And now it's a Fun work. Okay. <laughs> well, don't ask me because uh, I had a horrible experience at a slumber party at, <laughs> at my friend's 13th birthday party where we watched The Exorcist and Friday the 13th part one. And I've never watched a horror movie since and I never ever will again. <laughs> so don't ask me, I will have no part of it. <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it's funny because, you know, I think about all of the different things we do with our kids and and you know it's it's so it's so awesome that your daughter had you for a mom and you for a grandma and i don't know if she calls you something different than grandma tita 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 yep it, i mean what a lucky kid right to have you we're, guys we're the lucky ones yeah the lucky ones yeah and I'm glad you said that because that just strengthens the point even more that we're trying to make. It's it's not about us. It's about our kids. And 
uh, you guys really, really embody the floor time lifestyle. And I just think it's amazing that the third generation now is working with the autistic population and she's autistic herself. And um, that brings me to a thought and also a question that I had from a parent that I think you guys would be really great to answer. I know that in in the last two podcast in two recent podcasts, the subject was brought up about how do we tell our kids they're autistic? Do we tell our kids they're autistic? In the podcast I did with Dr. Alex Klein, it was on neurodiversity affirming care. And he made the point that, you know, if you're not telling your children about their diagnosis, it's like saying this is something to hide under the rug. It's a secret. And then in the the podcast with your colleague, Mike Fields, and it's so interesting for me to find out that that you were diagnosed with ADHD because he, of course, uh, we talked about in our podcast, his ADHD. And, and so it's, it's so interesting, the more I get to know the Floor Time Atlanta group, because you guys just seem like the most fun. Like, I think I was, uh, who was it? Uh, we were talking, um, Gretchen Kamke and Bridget Palmer and, and I, and we were saying, okay, that's it. We're going on a road trip to Atlanta because this is the fun group. And Mike's it like, would be yeah. fun to have you. Yes. Yeah. And then we can all uh, hang out with you guys because it's such a, a close knit group and you guys are all so like-minded. It's amazing. And then Dave Nelson is one of the first people in Atlanta I did a podcast with. And, and I always thought like, if, if things don't go well here, I know there's a place for my son. I'll just bring him to Dave Nelson when he's an adolescent because Dave is amazing. So yeah, it's really exciting. But this parent was asking, oh, so in the podcast with Maude and Mike, um, they brought up about whether or not they, it, it just was mentioned in passing, we didn't really discuss it, but you know, some parents tell their kids about diagnosis, some parents don't. And so a parent was curious saying that their child is still developmentally quite young and age-wise quite young. And so it's not like a teenager where you could have a back and forth logical thinking and you know at the higher capacities where you can discuss something in the abstract and symbolic way. So this parent is wondering, A, like, do I tell my child they're autistic? Do they even understand what that means yet? And remember that, um, and, yeah, it was Alex Klein that said the word autism doesn't have the meaning to our kids or the stigma that it has for grown-ups who've grown up in a world where you've heard all about autism and and it's the public perception has changed over the years and advocacy is continuing forward and we're hearing from more and more self-advocates and um, ICDL has totally embraced neurodiversity and we need to do a better job of that and need to get more self-advocates involved in floor time and uh, floor time partners with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And so, you know, it, we're at the beginning of that journey, but it's an important step in history that this is happening. And so this parent wants to know, you know, it should they tell their child? How would they tell their child? The child won't really know what that means. And do you want me to give my answer first and then I'll see what you guys think? <laughs> um, so. I have just always just said to my son, oh, you're autistic. Um, and just sort of in passing, like, 
you know, there's a sign on our street that I had the city put up autistic child because I, at the time when we moved here, I didn't know if he was going to run onto the street or whatever. Of course, I'm always watching him so that I think that would have never happened, but just being extra careful. And so I said, oh, look, they put up the signs for us because you're autistic. And then um, he's in a school with other autistic kids. So I'll say, oh, you you and your friends, they're, your friends are autistic. And But just sort of in passing, like not to make a big deal about it. And that's as far as we've gone so far. So I'm curious to hear what you guys think about it as well, because you mentioned that your daughter's turning 13 and she has a double diagnosis. She was first ADHD and then uh, diagnosed on the spectrum. So what would you tell parents who don't really know what to say? I think I've gotten it wrong and right. I got it wrong when it was ADHD. Um, and sensory processing differences. And I think, I feel like I got it right when it was autism because I had a little bit more time uh, to think it through, but I think. So how did you get it wrong first? The way I got it wrong is that it was all about me and my feelings about what my kid's diagnosis meant about me as a parent, right? Instead of recognizing a, that this was actually an okay thing, right? It, this is information that tells me how a child's brain works. And therefore, I can provide information in a way that's going to make more sense. Um, so in terms of really respecting and honoring those individual differences, and we've done that, you know, when our little one was little, and we had to bounce on a therapy ball for 30 minutes before eating the chicken nuggets that were the exact right brand, right? So we've done all of those things in terms of respecting individual differences. And, and our kid was really good at advocating and saying, no, I don't like how that feels, or no, I don't want that, or, or even very politely, no, thank you, right? But because I was so upset about it, and I was still processing the feeling, I was not able to separate my own feelings from what I was sharing. And I remember being a blubbering mess with you here and a poor graduate student. We're stuck in a room with us and I'm, you know, ugly crying. And um, what, what I did get it right uh, and was after we had that initial conversation, then I was able to deal with my own feelings and come back and say, oh, no, okay, this is actually a badge of honor. This means you have a neurotype like me. That's why we understand each other. We've got this. Um, and really raising a kid who can be a strong self-advocate and say, that doesn't make sense to me. I need you to explain it a different way, right? Or I have anxiety and it's really hard for me to sleep. Therefore, I need to sleep at this sleepover with specific um, stipulations, right? Um, when we actually saw Dr. Kathy Platzman at Floor Time Atlanta, for our diagnosis uh, of autism. And it was like, I remember calling my mom because Kathy and I talked first and we both went, of course, <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then by then, of course, you know, I've been raising my kid and, um, and I say to Andy, I say, Andy, um, Dr. Platzman, Kathy, she's wondering if maybe you're autistic. And I think, I think she might be right. And Andy looks at me and says, we were actually in the car because that's the best place to have a conversation. And, 
Um, she says, yeah, that makes sense. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. That was it. That makes sense. And so now Andy can say, hey, you know, that sensory thing makes me feel overwhelmed because I am autistic. Um, so when we had way back when a COVID exposure and we go in for COVID testing, Andy was able to say, I'm autistic, give me a minute. And it went great, right? So again, it was just really good information so that Andy can, can self-advocate. And I think that what you're bringing is very effective for some of the kids, but going back to your question, I think as parents, we need to be the ones determining when is it the time to say it? Because a parent is a person that knows their kid best. And for some of the kids, I have even suggested to the parents to do it in conjunction with, with a professional so that the professional can feed the words to the parent if they don't feel, especially if they don't feel comfortable. You know, we talk about autism like you have, you're blonde, blue-eyed, you know, it's, but we have to realize that not everyone looks that way. And that especially we may have a whole generation of people my age that like what you were saying so, so clearly think of autism as a different, I don't know what to call it, um, diagnosis. We know, and with, with the help of the self-advocates, they have helped us figure out, you know, what, what it really means to be autistic. Um, so I grew up professionally up to a certain extent with the, with, with the support of people that wanted to, to learn more and more, but we were still on the people's first language. So you are a person with autism. And it took me time because I had been raised professional with that to come back and say, you're autistic. That still doesn't come easy. But I think that with, with, with the self-advocates and the younger population that are helping us figure this out and our, our love for the kids, you know, you just look at your kid, you're, as a parent, you know your kid best, you know how much to say or not to say, and you bring it up. There is no hiding here. There is nothing to hide. Um, but how you present it might be the key to it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one one thing you can do is talk about brain differences and introduce the concept of neurodiversity. And just like Dada has black hair and Mama has brown hair and you have blue eyes and so-and-so has brown eyes and I'm tall and you're short or vice versa or whatever, uh, peoples have different types of brains. And mm -hmm. one type of brain is an autistic brain. and and that can mean different things and whatever. Uh, I guess, again, it, it depends uh, if your child's two, they're not gonna yeah. really follow you. <laughs> but just introducing that that concept and and just getting them used to hearing it maybe and, and neurodivergence, neurodivergent brains, neurodiversity, just 
sort of bringing it up, making it more part of the everyday conversation, talking about sensory issues. Oh, yeah, I really can't stand sour foods. That's my difference in taste. What about you? And getting them to talk about, you know, their preferences or things that overwhelm them. And um, one thing I've talked about many times on the podcast is how much of a sensory seeker my son is. But of course, he's also tactile, tactilely defensive in some ways as well. So he's not a seeker all the time. And then um, I mentioned that I'm a sensory seeker too, but only in certain respects. I think in auditory system, I'm a sensory seeker. But when it comes to vestibular, no way. I'm the opposite of my son. He's constantly seeking vestibular movement. You cannot get me on the simplest kitty roller coaster. I was terrified one day my son my uh, husband said just bring your turn bring him on that little ride i need to go to the washroom and get a drink or this and that get a cup of water it was really hot day just bring i'm like no i'm too scared he's like come on it's the simplest thing it's just one little hill so i'm on this log ride with my son at canada's wonderland just outside of toronto and it went to the top of the hill and i literally thought i was going to have a panic attack i held on for dear life my son's like having the time of his life I closed my eyes and screamed as loud as I could the whole way down. I swear the whole park heard me and my husband had come back back by then and I could see him shaking his head like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Like that's the simplest hill ever. But it was terrifying for me. The same thing happened um, on one of those slides. You sit on a potato sack and you go down those slides like this. It was at some farm amusement thing. And I was screaming the whole way down and my husband's at the bottom talking to the other moms. He's like, no, my wife doesn't really scream like that. Like he was so embarrassed. <laughs> so I, I, I am not a, a vestibular seeker at all. I'm vestibularly defensive or whatever. So even just talking about that and you guys, I think made the point, if I understand the answer correctly, that part of the reason you want to tell your child that they're autistic is for self-advocacy. And we spoke about this in the podcast I did with fellow occupational therapist of yours, Virginia Spielman, who's out at the Star Institute in in Colorado now. She said uh, a lot about the goal being eventually our children can advocate for themselves and they'll know if they need to go move, they'll know to take a break. If, If they know that the room is too overwhelming with lots of noise, they know to go down the hall and get quiet for a minute. And that's the goal. So it sounds to me like that, that was what you're saying as well. Yeah, very much so. And I think that again, you know, we're, we, it's a different generation. So we need to help them as they go through and by supporting them and by explaining to, to others from previous generations that this is okay and that we have seen that this is the way to do it. That's right, because in the past it was like, oh, that's the group that has the problems and they're yeah. the disorder. And and now we're saying, no, we've been misunderstanding it the whole time. This is a normal uh, spectrum of differences in the human brain, the functioning of the human brain. And so many examples of in history of autistics contributing to society and inventions and every part, every aspect of society, but it just wasn't known. And so many people being put in homes and treated horribly. And now with the bigger awareness and there needs to be a lot more, but 
eventually we'll we'll get there and and get the respectful approach like dir floor time that really takes into account those individual differences and and the relationship focusing on the relationship and not being about compliance and looking at development and playfully supporting and challenging not in a harsh way so um it was wonderful to meet both of you and to hear your story and hear about how floor time has been a part of your life now going into generation three so thank you so much for sharing your story with the audience well thank you so much for having invited us thanks daria this is great thank you so much and listeners if you go to affectautism.com you can look up floor time lifestyle and I'll put links to some of the past podcasts we referenced and any other things, any other fun things that we mentioned. So check that out at affectautism.com. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. <laughs>